Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Multipolarista Podcast. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by a good friend of the show, historian Aaron Good. Uh, he's one of my favorite academics. There are, I don't have very many favorite academics, uh, but he just published a really good book that is kind of a history of the U.S. deep state and of the criminality at the history of at the heart of U.S. government policy, not only foreign policy, but also domestic policy. Here it is. American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. And so what we're going to do today is kind of do an overview of some of the main theses of his book about the inherent lawlessness at the heart of U.S. government policy, the criminality at the heart of U.S. government policy, what the deep state is, and what exceptionism is or exceptionalism is. Uh, he actually has a very interesting definition of exceptionalism that's kind of different from the, the definition we often use, the idea that the U.S. is like the best country on earth. His argument is that the exceptionism at the heart of U.S. hegemony is partially rooted in this idea of criminality and the close links between the U.S. deep state and organized crime, criminal networks. Um, but, you know, another reason I wanted to get on Aaron is that he had a really cool idea, and we're announcing this with this show here, that what we're going to do over the next few months, starting with this episode, is we're going to do like a series of interviews focusing on different elements of his book. So, I mean, his book is, it's a monumental undertaking. It's a very impressive book. It's 400 pages. And like I said, it's really like a history of the U.S. deep state and organized crime and what the deep state is. And uh, so he has sections on uh, Watergate, which we're going to talk about. This June is the 50th anniversary, the JFK assassination, the Bay of Pigs, uh, the um, COINTEL program, counterintelligence program, uh, the creation of the deep state under Eisenhower at the beginning of the Cold War, NSC 68, which is the, uh, the U.S. government National Security Council resolution or um, document that really outlines the policy of rollback of regime change, the U.S. policy in the Cold War. And um, we're also going to talk about the close links between the CIA intelligence agencies and drug cartels. So there's a, there's so much uh, ground to cover. So in the next several months, we're going to do uh, you know, episodes focused on each different topic. We'll do an episode on Watergate. We'll do an episode on JFK. We'll do an episode on Iran-Contra. We'll do an episode maybe on, you know, MLK assassination, Malcolm X assassination, an episode on drugs. So, I mean, it's hard to open this, this interview, Aaron, because your book is just so sprawling. There's so much information. Um, but let, let's just start with what is... American Exception, this book you, you, you wrote, it was just published this June. Why did you want to write this? And why do you think it's so important in one place to have kind of a history of the U.S. deep state? Well, I worked in politics and I majored in political science as an undergraduate. And then I worked on political campaigns at a pretty low level in 2004. And also in 2008, I was a staffer for Obama. And after living through the Bush years, uh, I, I came to think that there would be a the pendulum would swing because if you do things bad enough one way, then democracy will correct and maybe swing back the other way. <laughs> and I thought that Obama 
was the person who would bring that about. I think I was naive at the at that time, and so I went to uh, Missouri and worked for about four months there, right before the election. It was just really grueling, like working you basically just work and sleep uh, for during that stretch of time, and you don't get paid very much. But it seemed like it was for a good cause, and so I did it. And then when he got elected, uh, there were things like the coup in Honduras. And uh, that happened pretty early. And then there were the bailouts and these other things. And I just thought it, it dawned on me that I'd been uh, suckered and this was this was not good. I wasn't happy about this. So uh, I instead of really trying to find a job in the administration, which I was going to put a lot of energy into doing that, getting some kind of political job and continuing in that vein, I didn't do that. I started to work more in uh teaching jobs. And I went to Shanghai for a sum the summer after that, like 2009. And then I read more. I happened to see Oliver Stone talking about JFK and the Unspeakable, this book by James Douglas. And I remembered seeing JFK when I was a kid, the film. And so on a lark, I just kind of ordered this book. And uh, I already knew more than the other people that I was working with as a campaign organizer about the dark side of U.S. foreign policy. Like when we talk about Iran and stuff, I'd, I'd read the book on the coup before. I'd read Stephen Kinzer's, you know, Overthrow and All the Shah's Men, those two books. So I knew more about the CIA and some of the uh, dark business of the, of the national security state than the people around me. But I still sort of thought that like there would be could be a change, you know, Cold War's over, we've, we've sobered up from 9-11, maybe things will be better, and it wasn't. And so this is something that I had to look at. And then reading about the Kennedy assassination really put a lot of things in context because most of Kennedy's foreign policy or a lot of Kennedy's foreign policy in di many different areas, when you look at it, it's not that he was, you know, radical, like, like Che Guevara had taken over, you know, running US foreign policy. But there were little redirections that he put in different areas. And the Vietnam question, it seems pretty clear to me now that he was pulling out of Vietnam. And that he wanted it in the Cold War, that he recognized that it was the Cold War that made it impossible to really do more to like make the world, you know, a, a better and safer place. And uh, that he wanted to end that. And he was stopped from doing that. And that it was actually pretty obvious that the national security state and elements connected to whatever the covert apparatus of the government had intervened to veto democracy violently, you know, exploding his head in the middle of the street. And so that made me want to look at like why scholar academia and the media and so on had failed. And so I started corresponding with some radical academics, especially Lance DeHaven Smith at Florida State. And uh, he gave me advice to get into grad school. And I did get into grad school. And then I started writing in this vein. Uh, who was believed in pluralism and might believe more of what I say than he would let on when it comes down to it. And so I had enough people there to support me on this project. I eventually got an article published in the decent journal Administration and Society. That was the original American exception. And then I continued to work on my dissertation. And after that, I really wanted to get it published. So I did what I could to get the endorsements for it uh, and then finally got Skyhorse to publish it. They would have earlier, but for COVID, but after uh, things sort of calmed down from that, they finally gave me a book contract. And so I rewrote it and I added a bunch of stuff. I made it less pedantic, uh, taking out the acad academic ease or whatever, academies, uh, prose and so on. So it's uh, this version I think is, is much better than the dissertation one. And there's not much like it in academia because all the incentives discourage you from writing this. 
kind of material, <clears throat> which is why I uh, have been, was teaching high school for a while and why I have a podcast now, because academia is um, more or less a pillar of the, of the state and a, a pillar of the establishment. And its function seems, it, it, one of its key functions is that uh, it needs to legitimize or at least not delegitimize the whole, uh, the, the whole structure of the U.S. empire. Yeah, Aaron uh, has a PhD in political science. We were talking about this off mic, and uh, I always prefer to call him a historian, and I think he kind of prefers that too, because despite the fact that he has a PhD in, in political science, I, I see his book really as a very good history and the good work of a historian, which is theoretically grounded. And, and it reminds me of, of Michael Parenti, who also has a background in political science. And I remember in one of his lectures, he jokes that the years he spent doing his PhD in political science were the most apolitical years of his life. And uh, w one of the things that really strikes me about your book, Aaron, which I really appreciate, is that it's always rooted in a materialist analysis. And this is something that's so lacking, certainly from a lot of political science literature, but also from a lot of history. You're always looking at what are the powerful interests and especially the corporate interests driving a lot of these policies. And one of the, the key points that you constantly make, you, you talk about this idea of the financial overworld and underworld um, being, you know, driving the interests of the U.S. deep state. And in a second, we can talk about what the deep state is because you have a, a very complex theorization of that. But I just want to, before getting even to that, I want to talk about why you stress so so deeply in your book the importance of looking at the financial and economic interests behind uh, the deep state and behind a lot of this criminal behavior by the U.S. government. You, for instance, you stress that the Dulles brothers the, who founded the CIA, Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, who founded the CIA, and then his brother, John Foster Dulles, who became secretary of state, they were at they were on, they worked at a Wall Street law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell, right? So these guys, they were representing Wall Street, and then they helped create these institutions that defined the U.S. deep state and the shadowy, you know, underworld. So, you know, can you talk about why you thought it was important in your book to stress the, you know, a kind of materialist analysis of the U.S. deep state? Well, I found that if you look at those elements, then you see the beginnings of the policies that end up being so fateful in terms of setting the trajectory of United States foreign policy. And they are understudied in, in, many, in many ways. There are leftist diplomatic historians who would look at things uh, like uh, you know, the creation of uh, the post-war um, like, the, like the, the beginning of the Cold War, like people like Lord Lloyd Gardner or Kurt Cardwell writing about uh, NSC 68 and the early political economy of the Cold War. And they, they can do some things very, very well. They look at the way that elites like Dean Acheson and the Dulles Brothers uh, shaped foreign policy and then implemented it and so on. But they um, were, there, there, were, there was less of a focus on covert operations. And I found that covert operations and diplomatic history, which is often, the diplomatic history can often be good, especially the progressive uh, Wisconsin school style uh, of diplomatic history. But there's a, there's a taboo or something or a, or a, a myopia about the, the role of intelligence and the reasons for 
creating such an entity in the first place. So during World War II, the U.S. elites in, in pretty much localized or, or centralized in the Council on Foreign Relations worked with the government to come up with a plan to get into World War II for the U.S. and then what they would do afterwards because they figured that with their industrial power, economic might, that would translate into military might and the U.S. would, would win uh, at, at least a, a victory, be on a side that wins to at least a large extent and then they need to figure out a way to run the world. And unlike after World War I, they were going to go for global leadership. And so this was paid for by Rockefeller Foundation and carried out by the Rockefeller-dominated Council on Foreign Relations, Rockefeller-dominated, Wall Street-dominated, just basically the tippy-top of American political economy. They're the ones who decided under Roosevelt how the U.S. was going to eventually enter into World War II, win World War II, and establish the post-war world order. To me, this is really notable because this is the high point of progressivism in U.S. politics. This is when the U.S. was the furthest to the left, and yet on this most fundamental question about the U.S. and what it's going to do in World War II and what it might do in terms of asserting global leadership, it was entirely a centralized, uh, top-down affair dominated by uh, the corporate rich and people that the corporate rich had hired with the State Department approval just sort of tacked on. And one of the reports was on like uh, security and sovereignty, I believe, and it was written by none other than Alan Dulles. And that part of the, of the War and Peace Studies project that the CFR conducted, that part is still classified. And uh, Peter Del Scott and others believe that it calls for the creation of something like a central intelligence agency to carry out covert operations. And after there already was an intelligence unit during World War II, that's the OSS, and it had people like Alan Dulles and Bill Donovan and Frank Wisner uh, that would go on to work in the CIA in, in its early days. Um, but it was decommissioned after World War II. People like Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover opposed it. And uh, others were not wanting the U.S. to have a permanent you know, intelligence apparatus. Harry Truman worried that it would, could become a Gestapo. He later pretty much said that it had. And uh, But they, they, they got it created anyway. They got it created especially the recommendation of some lawyers, people like Alan Dulles, and also lawyers from Dillon Reed, which is one of the most illustrious Wall Street uh, investment banks. So James Forrestal and Ferdinand Eberstadt from Dillon Reed were also there recommending for the creation of the CIA. And it gets created in 1947 with the National Security Act. Its early days are very mysterious, especially some of its covert activities in Asia, in East Asia, and we're actually publishing an article over at AmericanException.com that was written 50 years ago uh, by Peter Dale Scott, and he mailed it to Ramparts Magazine. And apparently the CIA, which was intercepting Ramparts as part of Operation Chaos, although it's not certain whether that was how exactly they came to get this article, they took this article and they talked about it at their morning meeting. And they said that because it describes the CIA as a tool of Wall Street, that it must be a communist plot, you know, communist party <laughs> propaganda. But some of the things that he writes about are how people at the Brook Club in New York were responsible for the early direction of the CIA, uh, that they had actually thought they would pass around the hat to all these rich people in order to get money to help steal the Italian elections. OK, that was one of the first things the CIA, the early CIA did. But eventually, Alan Dulles decides, no, the government should handle this. 
And so that's how it ends up happening. The CIA takes on its like first big covert operations. But additionally, you have in Southeast Asia, this other thing called the World Commerce Corporation. And Peter did research on this for decades. So this is kind of amazing that Peter did this work in 1970 and it gets stolen by the CIA. They accidentally maybe posted on their website and I downloaded it. So I'd have it. They sent, they, they've taken it down since then. I don't know if they put it back up or not but I downloaded it and we're going to publish a new version of it along with a new introduction from Peter. Subsequently, he learned about how World Commerce Corporation, which was backed by people like Rockefeller and uh, this guy named Sassoon, who was a big international magnate and uh, involved British intelligence, like this guy, Walter Stevenson and Bill Donovan, who was the head of the OSS. Uh, they were there and, and Willis Bird, another OSS veteran, and they helped to set up the reestablished the opium production in Southeast Asia uh, without the government really being involved. They go and set the groundwork there, including with help from Paul Heliwell, who was a Wall Street lawyer, also OSS, would later be part of the CIA. But they were doing like all of this covert operation stuff involving the drug traffic to set up a sort of anti-communist force intertwined with organized crime and the drug traffic right at the end of World War, right after World War II. So they're already thinking about how to establish capitalism in this part of the world. Uh, and they're going to rely on dark elements of society to do this. And this to me is an example of how, of really uh, you, to understand the CIA, you have to understand who created it and why they created it. And it, the people like Truman didn't really want it to be involved in all these kinds of dirty tricks. The only reason that they have the ostensible uh, authorization for that is a tiny little passage in the National Security Act uh, written by Clark Clifford, another Wall Street lawyer, and then a guy working in the Pentagon. Um, and he wrote that the CIA will from time to time perform other duties as decided upon by the National Security Council. That's really all it says. It doesn't say CIA is licensed to break the law in any way that it is, it is told to. Okay, it's, It was never really debated or discussed that that's how it would be. But that's how it's been interpreted and that's how it's acted. And that's where the that's a big part of where the exception in exception in, in the American exception comes from. The exceptionism is that after World War II, there's a state of exception that's more or less institutionalized to help run the American empire under the pretext of the Cold War. Uh, and, and that allows them to break the law whenever they see fit on the grounds of national security and it's uh, it, this is a problem for a democracy because democracy is supposed to be characterized by the rule of law. And it's also supposed to be characterized by open public debate about government policy. But if you have lawlessness and secrecy, that really can override democracy. This was initially done largely in foreign policy. But like Malcolm X said, after the assassination of John Kennedy, the chickens are always going to come home to roost. And this has been a big factor in US history, I think, is these dark forces that were responsible for the drive towards US imperialism <clears throat> after World War II, they cannot but be applied to the American political system because of all the systems that these elites and the managers of the empire need to control, must control, the American system is more important than any other one. So you would have to be 
kind of naive or or foolishly pro-American or a real American exceptionalist true believer to think that somehow these foreign policy practices would be quarantined to the international realm. And so that, I, I try to make that case for all the evidence, not all the evidence, but the impact of these things over all those all the decades since the end of World War II. Exactly. And, you know, uh, there's there are so many different cases that we can look at that you analyze in your book. In a, in a few minutes here, I do want to talk about Watergate because this June is the 50th anniversary. But before we do that, I want to ask you, Aaron, to be a little more specific to define what you mean by deep state. This is a term, of course, that as you acknowledge in your book, it, it became popular under Donald Trump, although really the uh, the term deep state historically, when it was used, especially in academia, it referred, referred more to the deep state in Turkey, the national security apparatus in Turkey that was not really uh, democratically accountable, and especially with the series of military dictatorships. You use deep state a little differently than other people use the term. And this gets to your idea of the tripartite model of U.S. Pol of po political power or of power in the United States. And, you know, typically there is a kind of dual model of political power in the United States. There is the public state and the security state. The security state would be, you know, the Pentagon, the CIA, FBI, and then the, the political state would be, or the public state would be the elected representatives. That's typically in, in a lot of academic literature how those, that, you know, dual power is, is portrayed. But you actually take that analysis a bit further. And I know this is partially influenced by the, the progressive sociologist C. Wright Mills that you, you know, you mention a lot throughout your book. Um, he had an idea of these three institutions of American power, big business, the military, and the political class. And, and you take a similar model. Your, your argument is that the three states that make up the power of the U.S. empire are the public state, that is the kind of political class that's ostensibly elected, the security state, but also the deep state. Now, when I was reading your book, that actually surprised me a bit because usually... I had kind of assumed that the deep state and the national security state or the security state were pretty much the same thing. But you actually drawing on Peter Dale Scott and others, you have a, a, a more detailed analysis of the deep state that also is very much international. It is a kind of supranational state. You argue that the deep state is the most powerful state. So explain what you mean when you say deep state and how it's different from just the security state. Well, as you point out, the Turkish, the or the, the or the term comes from Turkey. They had all these coups and scandals over the years, and eventually it all sort of came to a head with this car crash where there's a beauty queen, like the like literally Miss Turkey or something like that, <laughs> and she's with the top security service person, like the head of the of the national security state in in Turkey, head of the police basically as I recall, and then the head of the Grey Wolves, which is this notorious terrorist organization that had been responsible for all sorts of uh, crimes, drug trafficking. I think they were behind one of the assassination attempts of the Pope and a whole lot of funny business. And there was just no way that normal political science could explain the, this car accident where all these people were together. They should not have been together. It was as though 
you had like Christina Aguilera, Osama bin Laden, and the head of the CIA, and there was a car wreck <laughs> and they were dead, right? You would think, okay, there's something very wrong here and this needs to be explained. And so in Turkey, it was understood that, that the state, as they understood it, was sort of a facade and that below it, there was a deep state in Turkey. Now, this was in the 90s that this happened, but going through the late 80s and the early 90s, Peter Dow Scott, who had been looking into this, this stuff since the 60s and 70s, uh, at first, Peter Dow Scott comes up with the idea of parapolitics, which means politics, practices in politics where accountability is consciously diminished. So things like covert operations where political actors do things to affect events, political events, historical events, but they disguise them so that they look like something else and there's a cover story. And he was arguing that this had really warped and damaged politics. And so he wanted to explore these things more. And it was also related to the, in, the relationships between law enforcement and the mafia and the economic elites and organized crime and law enforcement and the way that all of these things interacted in ways that are not described by political science. Now, eventually, there's the Turkish case that brings this idea of a deep state because Peter Del Scott came to talk about not just the parapolitics part, but then he started talking about deep politics in the early 90s. He has this book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. But he didn't talk about a deep state. He didn't want to go that far um, until maybe in the 2000s when he reads work by Ola Tanander, who is a Scandinavian academic. Uh, he's at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. He's either uh, Norwegian or Swedish. I can't remember which, but he's in Oslo now. And uh, he was writing about Gladio and other related issues and how there's this deep state in the West and we need to look at it. And he especially talks about NATO countries and how they're ultimately, you know, things like Gladio and the assassination of Aldo Moro, that there seems to be this American-centered deep state that really dominates Europe. So, you know, NATO can be thought of in that way. Like NATO can almost be like the deep state of Europe, at least of NATO countries, and the U.S. really ultimately uh, presides there. So this notion of the deep state is starting to creep into conversation around 2015, the New York Times, no, 2013, uh, the New York Times defined the deep state as a hard to perceive level of government or super control that exists regardless of elections and that may thwart popular movements or radical change. And I think that was a decent definition, but along comes Donald Trump, you know, and Alex Jones kind of, I think, lays the groundwork for this. And there's this kind of bastardization of the term by right-wing actors. Uh, and that serves to kind of taint it, which I think goes on to this day to some extent that people, especially liberals, uh, want to like say that if you're talking about the deep state, then you must be like a Trumper. And so this is, uh, you know, we can debate or, or speculate why was Alex Jones talking about this? Why did Trump pick it up? For Alex Jones, is this like some, you know, is Alex Jones kind of some sort of weird black propaganda where he talks about these things and then by doing so, he makes them ridiculous, right? Like that's that's what a lot of people think. I, I tend to think that too, that he must have some backing from people. From the uh, deep state. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Like, in a, you know, he might not, who knows what he really knows, but you wonder who would be paying this guy to like sponsor their stuff, yada, yada. So I'm not su suggesting we try to solve that riddle anytime soon, but 
the effect was that this stuff is tainted with uh, like a, a stigma. And so people don't want to be, and they use it. It's, it's become ridiculous. The idea the deep state backlash or whatever, the tainting of it with Trump, the Trump washing of the term, uh, and also conspiracy theory in general. Like if you start to talk about state criminality, when the state has not admitted it, acknowledged it, <clears throat> then you get derided as a conspiracy theorist. I mean, this is, it's becoming really blatant and nonsensical, uh, it, all the more so uh, today. I mean, recently that Guardian article about these this supposedly Russian-backed conspiracy of conspiracy theorists, which is really what they're saying. There's like they posit a conspiracy theory about a Russian network of, of conspiracy theorists like Aaron Mate and Vanessa Bealy, with and they don't really address the substance of anything they say. They just denounce them as conspiracy theorists, describe them as a network. Which, which implies, and that they are often backed by Russia, so they basically pretty much flesh out their own conspiracy theory, and in so doing, they sl slander these people as conspiracy theorists. So it's completely nuts, just as it was during Russiagate, if you recall Russiagate, this was a similar thing, that they called the people who didn't believe the Russiagate conspiracy theory of like Trump and Russia conspiring to steal the election, if you didn't believe that, they would call you a conspiracy theorist. If you didn't believe the conspiracy theory. So this kind of, um, th this sort of est establishment um, muddying of the waters and use of Orwellian nonsensical language has made it difficult to talk about these issues because the people recoil from them. A lot of people don't believe that presidents and elected officials really make much difference. They know policies aren't going to change a lot. But if you start to like say, like, well, then there must be some sort of system of like super control what are we going to call that? This system of top-down rule in a nominal democracy? Well, that's more or less the deep state. Now, I define it more uh, specifically. I mean, I, I write that in my in my book. I say pluralistic to varying degrees. Okay, meaning that there's a bunch of different factions within it. But the deep state is an outgrowth of the overworld of private wealth, uh, and they refer it refers to various institutions that collectively ex exercise undemocratic power over state and society and that's essentially what we're talking about is why is there this regime in america that does not change course with elections trump didn't really radically change the direction of the ship of state and neither did biden and nobody expects them to and yet we don't necessarily have a conceptual theoretical framework for explaining that and so I try to provide some of that with a discussion and definition of deep state, public state, security state, and so on, this tripartite state theory. And I also point to the lawlessness that underpins it all. And back to your other sort of question or observation, the national security state, people would say, could say, like people like Michael Glennon could say that there's a double government. There's a public state, and then there's the security state that's kind of secretive, and the security state really dominates foreign policy and so on. But I point out that <clears throat> this kind of analysis leaves out the power of non-state actors in sort of establishing governance in the United States. And there's, there are also historical episodes where the security state is weakened or challenged in some way. And yet these institutions and this kind of top-down rule can still be uh, done covertly. And this goes back to the early pre-CIA days that I was just talking about. World Commerce Corporation set up, setting up the drug connection in Southeast Asia. 
uh, using people that would go on to be part of the CIA uh, and really influencing policy in that region down the road. And then also another example, under Jimmy Carter, a lot of the most notorious CIA covert operators are fired. They try to rehabilitate the CIA after our Watergate. And these guys go on to form the Safari Club using other countries' intelligence services and these fired CIA guys. And they are able to carry out operations even without the CIA being a part of it. And so how do we explain this kind of this political power that has the that makes policy choices and implements formulates and implements policy, uh, but is not really under the control of democratic governance or even the national security state. If it's, if it's challenged in any way, it's a, it's a power that is uh, above all these things. And this needs to be explained. Yeah. Something that you mentioned in your book, Aaron, I want to get it up here is this classic 2019 speech by former CIA director and then secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. And this is from the official State Department YouTube account in April 2019. This is as official as it gets. I'm, I'm sure most people watching this or listening to this have heard this. But this is where the former CIA director jokes about how I was CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we stole. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play that really quickly. Just it's it's always just funny hearing this from his from his the, the mouth of the CIA director think about problem sets. I, when I was a cadet, what's the first, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. I, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's, it was like, we, we, had, we had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, we had entire training courses. I mean, that, that's the part that often gets let out, left out. So, I mean, that's, that's the CIA director handing you a gift, Aaron, and proving your thesis of how the CIA is directly linked to criminality, how the deep state is directly linked to criminality. Talk about how a key part of the deep state is links to organized crime, essentially how organized crime is wielded by the state in the, in, in the interests, not only of the state, but also in those interests defined by elite financial institutions. I mean, I'll, I'll briefly mention that you have this really good part in your book where you talk about the Council on Foreign Relations and you describe it correctly as Wall Street's Council on Foreign Relations. A lot of people think the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, is based in D.C. No, 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 no. It's based in New York, founded by David Rockefeller, who was like the Jeff Bezos of his day, right? Except with even much, much deeper links to the CIA and, and the U.S. deep state and security state. And you mentioned that that the Council of Foreign Relations was involved in the formulation of U.S. pre-war, wartime and post-war planning. This was done on the basis of what the Council on Foreign Relations deemed to be the national interest, which is defined as, quote, a capitalist system with private ownership of the productive property of society, resulting in inequality in the distribution of wealth and income and attendant class structure. So. Basically, the argument was that what's good for Wall Street is what's good for the national interest of the U.S. And if we have to collaborate with organized crime and we have to lie, cheat and steal, that's OK, because that lawlessness is serving the national interests. Right. I mean, the Pompeo thing, he uh, 
he seemed to be cribbing from this maybe the the secret diaries of um george white this notorious guy who was a part of the cia but also i believe part of the bureau of dangerous of narcotics and dangerous drugs he was part of that operation uh what was it called in san francisco this safe house like midnight climax that's what it was operation midnight climax where they had these they'd give these guys acid uh, with these, they'd have like prostitutes dose guys with acid, and then he'd sit behind this two-way mirror and just watch the the craziness unfold, right? So George White, there's a quote from him where he says something very similar. This is why I think maybe Pompeo was like plagiarizing him here, I mean, not not literally, but here's what George White wrote: It was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All Highest? And uh, so that's another great quote of a CIA guy. Uh, Henry Kissinger once said, uh, the illegal we can do right away. The unconstitutional takes a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ellsberg wrote in Secrets that there were like three questions. This is uh, how I re remember it. So I'm just paraphrasing here. There were three questions that you never ask in these national security circles. Uh, is, it, is it moral? Is it uh, legal? Or is it true? You know, and that you basically if you start asking things like that, they're going to think you're like a unserious screwball and you're not going to be part of the like cool uh, foreign policy guy club anymore. So this is like there are plenty of instances where this lawlessness kind of gets acknowledged by the actual wielders of this power. But we don't acknowledge it very much now for the, the mafia part of it. This gets into things that existed in America, arrangements that existed in America before World War II. And uh, this is why I try to uh, sort of refine uh, and add to Peter Dell Scott's work. He described previously a deep political system where you have governance carried out by official but also unofficial methods. And, and, and you have actors who are not, you know, the, the monopoly on violence doesn't really stay with the state, that there's other kind of unspoken forces in society. And as an example of this, he points out how there were thousands and thousands of unsolved murders in Chicago and the mafia was intertwined with the political system. And so you couldn't really define politics and government by any sort of traditional understandings of the way that society works. Like they're gonna tell you there are these deep suppressed forces and they do involve collaboration between the corporate elite and the underworld. So a good dramatization of this, I think, the, of the pre-war era is uh, Boardwalk Empire with Steve Buscemi, the HBO series. I think Scorsese directed it. Yeah. And uh, you you look at that the way that it's and it's very much dramatized. It's loosely, loosely based on real characters in Atlantic City. But uh, it does demonstrate things that were, you know, relevant, which is the way that politics and uh, organized crime were intertwined at this time. And really in American history, especially in the history of American capitalism, which is American history. I mean, America is established by the colonies or like the Virginia Company uh, in Jamestown and then the Massachusetts Bay Company. And these are joint stock companies looking to set up colonies to make a buck. It's just capitalism. And they're, the reason that they need to leave England in part is because of capitalism, the enclosure movement, closing off the commons, uh, kicking people off the land for sheep so they can do grazing for this textile industry, et cetera. And this helps to lead to more colonialism, right? So capitalism and colonialism are, are intertwined from the beginning. And that's really America's history as a bourgeois colonial project. Um, 
but also an experiment in democracy. It's very imperfect, but with some progress and, and then not progress. But the criminal parts of it or things that we think of and see as pretty criminal uh, or at least criminal adjacent are not sideshows uh, in American history. The opium trade, for example, the U.S. wasn't as big as Britain, but the U.S. had an advantage because, uh, as I recall, the British uh, East India East India East Indies Company could only sell opium from India, and the U.S. could sell Turkish opium opium to China, and so there was a way for them to make a little bit of money that way, uh, due to the British restrictions on this, and so some of the most important families in early American capitalism, especially around Boston are related to the opium trade. They called it the China trade, but it was really the opium trade. And that's where people like the Delano's, the Cabot's, uh, the Forbes family, uh, the, they got all of their, they made their fortunes there. Um, the uh, Yale is basically built on, an, on money and land donated by the Russell Trading Company, the biggest one of those trading houses in the US. The first railroad was built with opium money. The first uh, textile plant, the Lowell Mills were financed with opium money. So between opium and the slave trade, there you have probably two, perhaps the two most significant early sources of capital uh, in U.S. history and in the history of U.S. capitalism. So it's sort of built on this foundation of uh, that's in intertwined with criminal commerce. And uh, this is this is kind of the way of things is that capitalism has always worked this way. You have the, and when they go into Latin America with the fruit companies, they have to rely on organized crime to crush labor and so on. This is part of why Cuba with the sugar industry was so brutal uh, and intertwined with, you know, Meyer Lansky's, the mobsters and so on uh, were, were so huge in, in Cuba because they were not only there for gambling and such and drug running, but also they were a part of uh, just the suppression of, of labor movements and so on. And uh, this is a, a part of the political economy of the U.S. and the Western world in general, I have to assume. I don't know as much about Europe, but I assume that there were similar things going on there. And in when you get to World War II, you have the OSS, this, the precursor of the CIA, and they have this Operation Underworld where they spring Meyer Lansky from jail, uh, or no, no, they have, they work with Meyer Lansky, who's clever enough not to be put in jail, apparently. And Lansky says, can you please uh, get my friend Lucky Luciano out of jail? He'll be really helpful with this project to help us protect the docks from sabotage. And they have this partnership with the syndicate, you know, the, the US government and the syndicate, the huge organized crime organization of Lansky and Luciano, uh, that uh, is established during World War II. So you have the government working with the biggest criminals in the world. And the CIA, you know, works with organized crime as well in different ways. Like I talked about the opium traffic in Southeast Asia, but you have to have organized crime really distributing that. You know, the triads uh, in China and Taiwan, these gangs, the KMT, uh, the nationalists, the Chinese nationalists were essentially uh, big drug, the big, world's biggest drug traffickers, uh, especially after the fall of uh, the mainland, right? And this uh, is there in the early Cold War. It, it's there before World War II, but it gets formalized with the intelligence agency during World War II. And then the CIA picks it up and takes it to new heights. So you have recurring scandals of operations being funded with drug money uh, and the mafia, like a um, 
you know, Air, Air America funding the secret war in Laos with drug money, the Contra war in the 80s, uh, the at Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the drug connection there. And that really gets established when they shut down all of the drug running in the, uh, or most of the drug running, the US drug running in Southeast Asia. So when the Vietnam War ends, all of a sudden, surprise, that area is no longer the big, uh, the center of world heroin production. I wonder why that is. And then around the time that the US starts to get involved in Afghanistan, that's when the Golden Crescent becomes the top heroin producing uh, center of the world. And uh, this is something similar for cocaine in Latin America in the 80s. I mean, under Reagan, it gets to new levels of absurdity where he's got this war on drugs, but he's also supporting the Mujahideen, like people like Gulbud and Hekmatyar, who's the world's biggest heroin trafficker, and the Contras, uh, Norman Meneses and the Colombian cartels are working with them, and they're the world's biggest cocaine dealers, uh, and they're also they're supported and backed by the CIA, protected by the CIA. And uh, there's numerous drug enforcement agency people who've said that the targets of their investigation are almost invariably CIA connected uh, and that it really made it impossible for them to do their jobs. So uh, a lot of people argue that the CIA essentially manages the international drug trade. Uh, you know, so that's one way of interpreting it. But it's it, it's funny that I heard Joe Rogan say it once on the show. I, I don't watch Joe super often uh unless he's got somebody i want to hear but for, there was some clip where he was talking about it and he was probably he was a little high when he said it but maybe that gave him some extra insight <laughs> and he said he said just think about it man it's like all that money do you think these big banks are just gonna like not take it because it's not pure <laughs> of course they're going to man of course they're going to and uh, i i think that that analysis from stone to joe rogan is probably uh pretty accurate because the three biggest commodities traded around the world are inter traded internationally are oil weapons and illegal drugs and uh this these are thing these are also commodities that factor into a lot of areas where the u.s gets involved uh you know pipeline routes selling weapons and uh drug drug running armies that the u.s might be supporting so this is something quite dark and sinister and also continuous did not curtain you know it's discursive like they're not always like the same group of people doing it uh, all the time but these are these pop up again and again in u.s in u.s history and uh in u.s foreign policy that we're always supporting these guys and uh you know it really begs the question of what exactly is the cia uh supposed to be doing with this as an institution how is this protecting or furthering democratic goals that you could actually talk honestly about. Yeah, well said. And just just because you mentioned a, a name, I want to briefly address. You mentioned uh, Gobaldin Hekmatyar, who was the horrible. I mean, he's still alive, actually, isn't he? Uh, the horrible Afghan warlord, closely linked to organized crime networks and opium, and he was backed by the CIA in the proxy war against the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And I love that on your book cover art, this is again his book, American Exception, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, you have Hekmatyar symbolically in between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, both of whom supported him. And I, I think uh, this art is by friend of the show, Abby Martin, right? That's right, yeah. She's the one who put Goba and Hekmatyar there. I didn't really have that idea, but I did want, <laughs> I did want him on there, but like I didn't expect that and it, it made me laugh 
I mean, laugh out loud when I saw the picture in the first place because it was like perfect. Yeah, great art. You also have, um, you know, Malcolm X. And I want to mention you have Patrice Lumumba here. And I just have to mention, you know, because it's uh, this is in the news this week. People might have seen that speaking of, you know, crime being a key part of how these Western states work after the coup, the coup and murder of Patricia Lumumba, the first ever elected Democratic uh, leader of Congo after the end of Belgian colonialism, Belgian intelligence with the backing of the CIA killed Patricia Lumumba. It was, in fact, one of the last things that Eisenhower did before leaving office was order the assassination of Patricia Lumumba. And after murdering him, they destroyed his body with acid. And the only thing remaining of his body was a tooth. And Belgium just returned Patricia Lumumba's tooth to Congo this week. And you can see this photo. Belgium's king, by the way, Belgium, the great so-called democracy is still a monarchy, greets the children of, the, of former Prime Minister Patricia Lumumba with his tooth, the only remaining part of his body. So just wanted to mention that because I know you have Lumumba on the cover of your, of your book as well. Um, Aaron, we were talking about that quote from, from Mike Pompeo about the criminality of the deep state and these US operations. I would be remiss if I didn't mention something similar. You, you had that other great quote about how, you know, the, at the CIA they rape and torture and kill and all of that. Well, uh, we know from Ray McGovern, and we also know from Barbara Honiger, who was a, uh, a White House aide for Ronald Reagan, and, the Re and she worked on the Reagan campaign. She later blew the whistle about how at the first meeting of Reagan's cabinet, the CIA director, William Casey, who oversaw, you know, the Contra death squads, who oversaw so many of these operations we're talking about, uh, allegedly, according to Ronald Reagan White House aide Barbara Honiger, and according to, to former CIA agent Ray McGovern, CIA director William Casey said, quote, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. <laughs> so it, it's another one of those, you know, choice quotes to add about CIA criminality. I, I want to address something else that you mentioned repeatedly dozens of times throughout your book, because it's such an important detail in the creation of the U.S. security state and deep state. That is NSC 68. Now, most people have never even heard of this, but I would say it's one of the most important government memos really in the modern history of the United States. This really, this was a study done by the National Security Council right at the beginning of the Cold War. And it really outlines a lot of US policy for the first Cold War. It, it outlines the policy of rollback as opposed to just containment. You know, when I went to school in the United States, I always went to public school. And in my history classes, they always taught us that the US policy was, was containment. But actually, it was rollback, regime change, overthrow. This memo, I mean, you can talk more about it, but it was written at the, under the guidance at the leadership of Dean Acheson, who's another very important figure in the creation of the deep state and the U.S. security state. He was Secretary of State. And explain why NSC 68 was so important and why it keeps coming back throughout your book, which, again, is a history kind of of the U.S. deep state. 
Well, I increasingly have come to believe this is, I added more on this when I did the book version compared to the dissertation that NSC 68 is extremely important. And the rollback aspect of it is, uh, I, I wouldn't, it, that was a faction of the U.S. is the people that were interested in rollback. But it's interesting that that the report would be produced by Atchison, who was also the supervisor of George Kennan when Kennan wrote the long telegram, which became the basis more or less for containment, or at least it's described that way for the containment policy. Because Kennan actually says in that, uh, that, he says all these things about the Soviets and how paranoid they are and so on, how they can't really be accommodated. Uh, but he also says in his long telegram that they're not very powerful and that they're mostly defensive in what they do. That part gets kind of left left out and forgotten. But NSC 68 is written in 1950, and it's the rollback parts of it are are worth noting, especially for some things that are implemented later, like the 1956 operation in in Hungary. But they're never they don't really invest heavily in trying to roll back communism in Eastern Europe. It's more rhetorical and more advanced by right-wingers in the in U.S. domestic politics than it's actually ever fully adopted by people like I, by Eisenhower and so on, I mean, with maybe some exceptions. But the key about, national, about NSC 68 and what I'm just trying to, I'm increasingly trying to wrap my mind around the importance of this, uh, which, it, and that is that it was really about, I, I believe, this, there's an argument made by Kurt Cardwell here in this book, NSC 68 and the Political Economy of the Early Cold War, that the main crisis for this and what necessitated this document being written and the policies being developed uh, later, which create the military industrial complex, was not really genuine fear of, the so of Soviet aggression, of, the, of a impending Soviet invasion of, of Western Europe. It was really about problems that they were having constructing this multilateral uh, world order, economic order, where the U, where the U.S. would trade with Western Europe, and Western Europe would not trade with the Soviet Union, and they would also be trading with allies in East Asia. Okay, and this is going to form the kind of basis of this U.S.-led capitalist system, with the U.S. as the center of gravity and trade flows going across both oceans uh, to the U.S kind of unnatural. If you look at a map of the world, you might think Eurasia might be the center of gravity. And the U.S., one of its main functions is to make sure that that's not the case. And so the problem was after World War uh, II, the England and other Western European countries were not able to buy U.S. goods. And so this was going to eventually lead them to autarky, uh, trying to trade with each other, probably being neutral in the Cold War, maybe eventually uh, buying a lot less from the United States because they don't really have the dollars to, and then doing more trading with, with Russia, maybe eventually uh, leading to the creation of strong socialist or communist uh, political parties in their own countries. And this was going to mess up the plans of the multilateralists who were really these like some people call them liberal internationalists, but basically the people that ran the Council on Foreign Relations and wanted to set up this global capitalist empire after World War II. And so the thinking is, born of necessity in, their, in these people's minds, because they think that they must have this global capitalist empire of, of commerce, that they need to, they have the Marshall Fund first to try to fund the recovery and deal with the fact that Europeans are not able to buy 
American goods without help from America. Okay, that's why the Marshall Plan is set up. But it's clear that this is not going to solve the whole problem. And so NSC 68 calls for a massive military buildup. And they are, they're, kind, they're surprisingly candid in certain sections of this report uh, about how the real threat is, is European neutrality, that they might become neutral. And then that would lead to trading with the Soviet Union. And that would go against the plans that they have for this global capitalist US-led empire. And so the Cold War is ginned up uh, and exaggerated. The threats, the position of the Soviets and the aggressiveness of the Soviets are overstated. I mean, the Soviet Union was not in a, they, they were defensive after World War II. They occupied Eastern Europe and they wanted to make sure that there were no unfriendly governments there because those places had been used as superhighways for Germans to come in and kill millions and millions and millions of Russians. And so they weren't going to do that again. Churchill understood this and FDR understood this. They agreed at Yalta that these places would be essentially a Russian sphere of influence. But Russia actually, the Soviet Union was okay with Czechoslovakia and Poland and other countries having some commercial relations with Western Europe. They weren't wanting to set up this Iron Curtain the way that it eventually emerged. Uh, but the West, for reasons of global hegemony, needed Western Europe not to trade with Eastern Europe. They kind of needed they, well, I don't say they kind of, they did need the Soviet Union to be cast as this international conspiratorial communist boogeyman that wants to destroy everything good and holy in order to justify this economic regime that they were establishing post-World War II. And so their, their solution to this is a huge military buildup that would lead to government spending in different areas and allow the Western European countries to generate money that way in order to uh, help with this, what was called the dollar gap. And the Korean War especially ends up really um, institutionalizing this huge military buildup. And the U.S. doesn't really demilitarize that much after World War II, except for a brief period, but it leads to recession because there's problems with the economy in the U.S. The, they need government spending alone or you risk having situation like the great depression uh there's just there's not enough demand there's problems with the capitalist system and so how are you going to deal with that you could deal with that with socialist institutions like you could make sure that there's credit for housing and food and other necessities of life medical care uh for people and that that might be one sort of basis which would allow also people to have you know more income to support other practices if you didn't want to have you know everything run by a you know commune or whatever but the, the they didn't like this idea they didn't want this idea for america and so the military industrial complex becomes a way to solve all of these problems cardwell's book lays this out really well c Wright mills in the power elite in 1956 he without using a lot of these documents because he didn't have them but he points out the same thing he says the the solution for everything is is military spending that this privately incorporated permanent war economy has been adopted as the, as the panacea for all the political problems of American elites. And those elites are interchangeable, as you pointed out earlier, you were discussing Mills, between the political realm, the military realm, and the corporate chieftains. And so the, the establishment of a permanent war economy that is privately incorporated, meaning that it's taxpayer money going to private corporations to make weapons, uh, this becomes a pillar of not just the U.S. economy, but the world order that the U.S. wants to is, is creating after World War II, and it requires the Soviet Union and, and global communism to be a boogeyman. 
And so in a way, the U.S. reforges an anti-communist international, which was ironically the name of the official name of the Axis powers in World War II. They were the anti-comintern pact. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what the U.S. establishes uh, for reasons that are not honestly depicted to the American public. It's depicted to the public as, uh, you know, Soviet aggression and terrible designs and the global communist conspiracy to pollute and corrupt everything good and holy and righteous. Uh, and so this is the way it's sold to us. But it, it really was all about the designs of these of these people uh, who are like Dean Acheson, who's like just at the pinnacle. I won't say Dean Acheson is the pinnacle of power, but he's kind of like the top leg man for the really super powerful people like, you know, the Rockefeller family, the Dillon family and so on. And Acheson is like of that world, but in a more visible kind of, you know, uh, workman role for them. And uh, this, these they make these choices about how the economy is going to be structured. And it just makes a joke of any kind of libertarian explanation for American prosperity or, or the benefits of capitalism, because it really was planned from on high, a small group of people planning how things are going to be. And that really set the structure of the global economy. So it was never done on like any on the basis of any kind of free market principles or anything. There's always a massive uh, hand of the state in planning this stuff. And the state was steered by people who were not necessarily, who were typically not elected, were appointees and were drawn from the ranks of the American overworld of, of the super rich. Yeah. Economist Michael Hudson often says that the U.S. has one of the most planned economies in the world, but the central planning is done on Wall Street. And he would know Michael Hudson was the chief balance of payments economist at Chase Manhattan Bank of Rockefeller, which was like the main CIA bank in the middle of all of these operations. A few things you mentioned, Aaron, that I think are, are really key. So I think I wanted to focus on NSC 68 because, you know, this this episode is kind of an introduction to the deep state and this, this, this criminality and understanding uh, the 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 infrastructure behind the U.S. deep state. And here's the Office of the Historian website at the State Department. You know, they describe NSC 68. Obviously, this is the euphemistic description from the U.S. government, but they describe it saying that given the victory of the, of the communist revolution in China in 1949, and then the Soviet Union's creation of nuclear weapons, they argued that the best, this is an exact quote from the U.S. Office of the Historian, quote, the, or they're saying that the, the national security officials who wrote NSC 68, quote, argue that the best course of action was to respond in kind with a massive buildup of the U.S. military and its weaponry. And you point out in your book about how this is part of the beginning of the military industrial complex, because that massive buildup of the military and weaponry that the, that the State Department talks about was largely done through the private sector in this kind of public-private relationship. But you also acknowledge in your book, this is a key point, that NSC 68 was written in 1950. This is the beginning of the, of the first Cold War, right? And it was overseen by Secretary of State Dean Acheson. Dean Acheson is one of the key figures in, in one of the key architects of the first Cold War. He oversaw Truman's foreign policy. He was Truman's top foreign policy advisor and then Secretary of State. He helped create NATO. I mean, of all the people who created NATO, Dean Acheson is one of the key figures. 
And today, I mean, with the the proxy war in Ukraine and then the, the conflict we've seen in the past two or three years over Europe's dependency on Russian energy, I mean, that, that everything that we're seeing now is so similar to this, this, this discussion that was had with the Marshall Plan in the 1950s about preventing Europe from being too close to Moscow, right? But I, I, want, I want to mention another name here. We talked about Acheson. There's also Paul Nitsa, who is the, uh, the man who wrote the actual NSC-68, and he was, uh, he was later on under LBJ, under Johnson, he was Deputy Secretary of Defense, and he was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. He was also under Truman. He was Director of Policy Planning. This guy was another one of the key figures in the U.S. national security state, and he was, he was this is the guy who wrote NSC-68. In 1949, a few months before he wrote it, he admitted, quote, nothing about the Soviets' moves indicate that Moscow is preparing to launch in the near future an all-out military attack on the West. But at the same time, the irony is that he admitted that there's no evidence that the Soviet Union was planning an attack on the West, but he was part of Team B. Team B, maybe you can talk about was this team that was brought in after the CIA was accused of undermining the so-called threat of the Soviet Union. And we now have this really good book, I mean, incredible book that didn't get that much coverage by Daniel Ellsberg. And we'll, that name will come back when we talk about Watergate in, in a second here. But Daniel Ellsberg published this new book recently, The Doomsday Machine, in which he talks about, you know, he was a, an analyst at the Rand Corporation, which is basically an arm of the Pentagon. They all knew that the Soviet Union was not realistically a military threat to the West, that its military arsenal was strictly defensive and was a tiny percentage of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. But Team B was brought in because the CIA was accused by, you know, the McCarthyite hawks of supposedly being too soft on the Soviet Union and, and downplaying the military threat it posed. I know George H.W. Bush, Poppy Bush, who of course was CIA director later and then president, he was also involved with Team B. Even though they were brought in to try to exaggerate the so-called threat of the Soviet Union in order to, of course, create the military-industrial complex and all of that, they secretly and private were admitting that, that the Soviet Union was not a military threat. I mean, there's not really a question in there, Aaron, but I'm, I'm wondering if you just have a thought you want to add there about Team B and then maybe Bush's role. Yeah, well, let's think about Nitsa in particular. He is often cited as, uh, some people would say he was like the original neocon. Other people would say it was uh, Henry Scoop Jackson, the, the senator, Democratic senator from yeah, Washington. Yeah, he was a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, sometimes described as the senator from Boeing because they were such a huge employer in the state of Washington. But around the time that NSC 68 is created, you also have this, group that emerges called the Committee for the Present Danger. I think this may have been, this was around the time, or maybe it was a little before, maybe it was in the war scare of like uh, 1948. But they basically came together to like talk about how dangerous the Soviet Union was, and they were arguing for more military spending. And this was the original Committee on the Present Danger. So it was funded by military industrial complex people to uh, guarantee that the aerospace industry would be saved, for example, because they were in big trouble after World War II and the demilitarization of the U.S., but also, you know, things like 
in SC 68's uh, calls for a massive buildup. Now, later, as you point out, he's involved in Team B. Team B is set up because of Nixon and detente, and they were going to ratchet down a little bit of military spending after Vietnam. This alarmed people in the military industrial complex. Uh, and Gerald Ford has this Halloween massacre. He fires William Colby. He brings in George H.W. Bush, who's kind of part of the dark part of the establishment, that family. And he creates Team B, and he brings in people like Nitza. Now, they're under Carter. They are, I don't know, if I think they may be disbanded before Carter. But that, cert, that kind of uh, piece of the establishment that was really looking for more military spending, they event, people eventually prevail on Carter not to go to the left as a president, but to go to the right. And he ev eventually uh, begins this big military buildup. People think it was Reagan that did that, but it was really Carter. And it was sort of continuing things that were begun by, by these Team B uh, neoconservative people. And uh, this is Nitsa under Reagan. There's a second committee for a present danger. They get revived. And this time Nitsa is not just like writing the NSC report that the committee for the present danger is promoting uh, the, the goals of, but he is part of the, the second committee for the present danger. And uh, I think they may have reformed again. And this time the focus might be on China, but somebody should look that up. But I, I seem to recall somebody coming across some story about maybe they've, they've, reunited they've got the band back together Nitz is dead by this point i'm pretty sure but um it's it would be something if that was if that were true uh so this this is it, it's very difficult to bring these forces in line under reagan they really become super powerful because of the way the 70s were uh, sorted out all the problems of the 70s get sorted out with oil shocks and interest rate hikes and so on and once the dust settles, you have Reagan in charge of a, a very powerful dollar regime, control over the oil supplies of the world and the oil markets, more or less, and the ability to run huge deficits, uh, which they do for military purposes. And the Soviet Union is recast as this evil empire when there's just the nuclear question alone means that they're obviously not going to expand anywhere. So there's really no logic behind the Soviet Union as a threat. To, to people like Reagan that they're making. But, you know, when the, the media is owned by corporate forces, they, Reagan is a corporate candidate connected to General Electric in, the, in years past, part of the military industrial complex. And so the reality is kind of what they make it. When Karl Rove said that to uh, Suskin, Ron Suskin, you know, that famous quote where he says, like, we're an empire now, we act, we create our own reality. This is not like, a new thing you know this is pretty much like what they did throughout the whole history of the u.s empire i mean that's what nsc 68 was that's what the long telegram was it was the basis what the basis for u.s foreign policy was were, was created realities th th that were useful to sell it whatever they wanted to, uh, to get politically and that's that's the situation that we've been in we see it now where it's like oh my god for no reason russia attacked Ukraine must be because it must be because Putin is like a Hitler. And this is this is the reality that people accept from on high. And this is not it's novel in its particulars, but not in its uh, general contours. Yeah, I mean, history began on February 24th, 2022. So the reason for people who are listening or watching, the reason I wanted to focus so much on NSC 68 is because 
This kind of establishes the beginning of the first Cold War, and a lot of these names, like Dean Acheson and Paul Nitza, they come back repeatedly throughout uh, Aaron's book because, you know, to understand the deep state, we have to understand the history that created it. Like I said at the beginning, we are going to do a series of different episodes focusing on specific topics. Um, but before we, we get to Watergate, because I know, I mean, we're already at over an hour and we've, there's a lot we've covered. So I don't want to keep you forever. And, and Watergate could be a, I mean, we're probably going to do at least one episode just on Watergate because that's a whole other story. Um, pr honestly, probably multiple episodes. But before we get to that briefly, I just want, well, the, the last thing I want to say is that we were talking about you know, we mentioned the Rockefellers, uh, we mentioned Dean Acheson. You have a really good part of your book here where you talk about the patrons of a lot of these figures. And you note that uh, many of the powerful Americans in the mid 20th century, and you're talking about people, you know, within these structures of the deep state or within, uh, you know, the foreign policy apparatus, many of them, like Dean Acheson and John, Mc John McCloy, were not given to candidly discussing the core interests and motivations behind the policies they advocated, sometimes referring to them as imponderables. But you mentioned that McCloy himself was a Rockefeller man, and the most notable realist policymakers of the Cold War were men with very powerful patrons, like Kissinger. Kissinger was also a Rockefeller man. Uh, Henry Kissinger campaigned for Nelson Rockefeller's 1968 presidential run. Kissinger was Nelson Rockefeller's assistant. Rockefeller commissioned Kissinger to write a book for the Council on Foreign Relations. Kissinger was married to an aide to Rockefeller. Kissinger owned a mansion thanks to Rockefeller. And you also mentioned Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was also a Rockefeller man. And you mentioned that the patron of George Kennan was himself Dean Acheson. So you, you stress that whether it's Kennan, Kissinger, Brzezinski, each of them was a real politic engineer for an architecture never, never fully articulated. It's not difficult to grasp the utility of such realists. They formulate and execute grand strategy based on a conception of the national interest, which is surprise in concert with the class interests of their patrons. So basically, I mean, in, in other words, what you're getting at there is that these, these monumental, colossal figures in the history of US national security, US foreign policy, people like Kennan, Acheson, Kissinger, they were Rockefeller employees. They basically were working for one of the most powerful, wealthy billionaire oligarchs. And again, for a lot of younger people, the name Rockefeller might not really mean anything, but Rockefeller was kind of like this Jeff Bezos figure back in, in the mid, early, early to mid 20th century. I mean, there are obviously multiple Rockefellers, but Nelson Rockefeller and David Rockefeller, these were extremely powerful capitalist oligarchs. And the point that you make is that these so-called realist foreign policy strategists, even if a lot of their ideas were not implemented, they were promoted and their ideas were advocated for because they were promoting the class interests of the billionaires who were funding them, which was the Rockefeller family specifically. Yeah, absolutely. These guys, I mean, there's the famous people that you just point out, some of them like McCloy and Brzezinski and Kissinger. 
But there's additionally, like, uh, for example, in Kennedy administ Kennedy's administration, he had dozens of people who were who had previously been part of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund in his administration. And so he eventually comes uh, to want to try to, a different policy than these people. At one point, Kennedy said uh, to an aide, you know, I don't want to do this. I, this is this is going to be just like the it's going to be like Atchison and Dulles are still running things. And that was a reference to this sort of entrenched sort of Rockefeller dominated Council on Foreign Relations dominated uh, way of doing things. But they were so powerful in politics and in think tank circles of the day and academia, intellectual foreign policy circles such as they were back then, that you really couldn't you couldn't you couldn't put together an administration without these people being there. And I think that this leads to some problems for especially for the Kennedy administration. Well, let's say Kennedy, Nixon and Carter all kind of clash with these with these forces. Um, the, the Kennedy was in Fortune, I think it was in Fortune magazine. They have this back and forth over uh, how the economy should be run. Uh, and Kennedy at one point says to an aide that I wish that this, you know, if there was no Cold War, it would be great because then we could actually have an honest debate about the best way to organize an economy. You know, and so this was Kennedy struggled with these these forces uh, who had this who were against sort of progressive internationalism and were more along the lines of multilateral interna internationalism, which really meant sort of capitalism, uberales and uh, very helpful for entities like Standard Oil and Chase Manhattan Bank or the Seven Sisters, you know, Standard Oil gets broken up, whatever. But so Rock and Rockefeller under Nixon. You know, this I think is one of the we'll get we can talk about Watergate in a bit, but I think that that faction also turns against Nixon, and that's decisive. Jimmy Carter was more or less handpicked by David Rockefeller and the Trilateral Commission to be their golden boy. I mean, that's the effect of of Watergate is that the Rockefeller Republicans are kicked out of the party, but they more or less relocate to the Democratic Party. So in 1976, instead of getting a liberal like Ted Kennedy you get Jimmy Carter and he's been on Time Magazine and everything else, but his accomplishments really aren't so great. It's just that the Trilateral Commission picked him to be the guy. They wanted a Southern Democrat and they wanted to move this sort of Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party into the Democratic Party and they get Carter. But eventually Rockefeller turns against Carter for not doing everything that he wants to do. And Rockefeller uh, and people underneath him are uh, responsible for bringing Carter down to a large degree. It was, he had this huge lobbying campaign to get him to bring, to get President Carter to allow the Shah of Iran into the country. Carter said, well, I'm not going to do that because, you know, what are you guys going to do when they take all the people hostage at the embassy? But then he did it anyway. And uh, it led to disaster, the hostage crisis. And then there were these people around Rockefeller also were involved apparently in keeping the negotiations from succeeding so that the hostages would be released and it might help Jimmy Carter in the election. Instead, the hostages are finally released on the day Reagan is inaugurated and Rockefeller was a, was a part of that. So this is a, 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 the sort of personification of private power, but he has this whole corporate structure behind him and they're very influential in the world of philanthropy, foundations, uh, academia, uh, you know, they can, academics have to get funding for their dissertations, their doctoral projects and so on, or if they want an endowed chair somewhere, uh, there's the power of these actors. Uh, who knows what kind of influence they exert over journals, but I have to think that it's significant. And so it's hard to overstate the power of somebody like that. I think it's more diffuse now. 
So when you say the Rockefeller was the Bezos of his day, I think that actually understates how how much power he had. For uh, sure, it, it's he was the top figure in the Council on Foreign Relations when they formulated the plans for the U.S. empire. I think Dean Acheson would have been more or less a servant of people like David Rockefeller. Uh, and then it's pretty notable that you go in terms of foreign policy, the guru, you go from a, a Republican administration with Henry Kissinger, a Rockefeller guy as the sort of main guru of foreign policy. And then, you know, pretty much let's forget Ford for a second, Jimmy Carter and Brzezinski, Brzezinski's running national security uh, policy for Jimmy Carter. And he's, you know, a trilateral commission Rockefeller guy. And so this is private power uh, exerting itself in the U.S. political system and pretty much dominating it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about, Aaron. I know we're already at an hour and 20 minutes. So um, just again, for people listening or watching, I'm going to have Aaron back and we're going to do, well, not just, I mean, he'll have me, but what we're going to do is we're going to do a joint uh, series and he'll post it on his podcast, American Exception. I'll post it as my podcast, Multipolarista. And we're going to do a series focusing on you know, probably maybe we'll do one on NS68. Maybe we can do one on the Rockefellers, on the Council on Foreign Relations, on Watergate, on uh, JFK. I mean, multiple on JFK. There are so many things that you you cover in your book, Aaron. I mean, it's impossible to to get to cover a lot of them. But just to, to conclude in the last, you know, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes here. Uh, I mentioned that we would talk about Watergate simply because of all the things you address in your book, which are very important, maybe Watergate right now is the most uh, important to discuss because at least it's the most relevant. This is the 50th anniversary, June 1972. So we're in the 50th anniversary right now. And there's some coverage in the mainstream corporate media, but a lot of that coverage is very lackluster. I mean, it's, it's missing very important details, especially the role of the CIA you have a very good chapter on Watergate. I mean, you bring up Watergate several times, but you have a really good chapter called The Watergate Mystery, wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. And there's a few things I want to mention. I mean, uh, but I do want to talk about Bob Woodward. This is the Washington Post journalist who is, you know, very well known for helping to expose Watergate. But many journalists have speculated for a long time, and, and you state pretty clearly in the book that it's very likely that Woodward was more of a, an intelligence operative and less of a journalist. I mean, he, he, wasn't, he didn't just have sources in the CIA. It seems like he was definitely acting in the interest of the agency in a lot of ways. But I just want to start kind of more generally. For people who probably know about Watergate, they know the basics. In, 19, in June 1972, these five burglars were arrested for trying to break into the DNC in the Watergate Hotel in, in Washington. And, you know, this was this big scandal that was investigated and it showed how the Nixon White House and his reelection campaign, and they were trying to use state assets to go against his political enemies. But of course, what's left out of that history conveniently is that the five burglars who were arrested were a mixture of so-called former CIA agents. They were CIA assets and anti-Castro right-wing Cubans who were closely linked to the CIA. And, you know, th these are called the, the plumbers, right? The White House plumbers. And the reason they were originally convened is because in 1971, the year before, 
I mentioned the name earlier, Daniel Ellsberg. He blew the whistle with the Pentagon Papers exposing these U.S. government lies in Vietnam. So the plumbers were originally brought together as part of this Nixon-led operation to centralize intelligence, oper intelligence gathering and specifically using the leak of the Pentagon Papers as an excuse to crack down ostensibly on leaks. But it was also because Nixon didn't even trust the CIA. And then this gets into the whole role of the Bay of Pigs and JFK. But, I mean, talk more about Watergate and specifically why Watergate plays such an important role in your book, which is about the inherent criminality of the U.S. deep state. Yeah, Watergate is really fascinating, uh, very complicated. I don't even consider myself like a master of, of Watergate minutia because there's just so much, there's so many names and different figures and so on. But I've read some of the critical accounts, especially I think the work of Jim, Ho Jim Hogan and Peter Dale Scott is really great on Watergate. Jeff Morley's new book is, is interesting. Uh, and also, um, I think Lynn Kolodny wrote a book on it that's pretty good. And there's, there's just been a number of sort of critical accounts of Watergate over the years. And it's there are many mysteries about it that still persist. For example, they don't know who actually ordered the second break-in or why. It, seems, it also seems that the bug that they said was planted there that they discovered was actually uh, planted after the fact, like sort of planted evidence. That's very bizarre. As you point out, uh, or you pointed out earlier, Bob Woodward, the famous reporter, he was uh, an intelligence officer, and he had been working for some right-wing generals uh, who had been actually spying on Kissinger and Nixon and trying to like steal papers out of Kissinger's uh, briefcase, for example, in order to understand to know what the foreign policy was, because Nixon was actually trying to run foreign policy independently of some of these groups so that they would not be able to interfere. Nixon was trying to deal with issues that bedeviled people like Kennedy uh, in terms of being able to execute the policy that you want with bureaucracies in the Pentagon and intelligence world that are opposed to, to you and might try to undermine you. So he took steps to be able to work around them and not keep them up to speed unless he needed them to be. And then they took actions like spying on Nixon. They got caught, but Nixon didn't want to, didn't feel that it was wise to take it public. But, but one of those, an underling of one of those p officials, uh, I think it was his Wellander, Admiral Wellander, and then Moore and Radford were like lower level people involved in this firing. But Woodward had worked with some of these people, but then he parachutes into becoming a reporter. And then he goes to the post and breaks the story of the century, more or less. And one of the, supposedly one of the things that started him on this path was that at this, he was just happened to be in the courtroom when James McCord, one of the burglars, tells the, is explaining to the judge that he used to do operations for the CIA, and this somehow piques Woodward's interest, and then he starts to dig into the story a little more. But uh, the way that this story came out was really through a ton of, a lot of leaks. Like, people were leaking things to try to damage Nixon, and he was uh, fearful of other leaks coming out, like, for example, the fact that he had sabotage peace negotiations in 1968. He was worried the Brookings Institute had documents related to that. At one point, he was going to firebomb Brookings. And then when the, everybody evacuated the building, people were going to go in and steal these files. That was part of his plan, which never came to pass. But he was really, Nixon was trying to get dirt and leverage on these people, up to and including a trip over to the CIA headquarters uh, a year before water, the Watergate break-in, where he talks to Richard Helms 
and he's trying to get secrets related to Bay of Pigs and the Dirty Tricks department. And he even goes as far as to say the who shot Jack angle. I, I need to know who's responsible. Believe me, I want to protect the Dirty Tricks department. We need it, but I need to yeah. know what's coming. Of course, so when he says who me. shot Jack, he means who shot JFK. Who shot JFK. And uh, Helms never gives him these files. He placates him in a way, gives him other files. And then a year later, in, in July, I believe it's July. Yeah, it's, no, wait, we just had the anniversary. It was June of 72. The burglars are arrested, but nothing really comes of it immediately. And uh, this is... But Nixon is worried about this somewhat. He has to be because these people are there doing things for the White House. But there's no reason to think, based on the way that the press and the legal system operates, that the president wouldn't be able to do this. Because what Nixon ends up getting nailed for in Watergate, the so-called smoking gun, is such a pedestrian crime relative to what is standard operating procedure in the United States that it demands a, a, a deeper analysis as to why the political forces in America would coalesce to, to remove this, this president for crimes when crimes are really, you know, one of the main things that the U.S. is involved in. And, and it's Nixon is castigated for saying things like uh, afterwards, like when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. And liberals are some for some reason sort of scandalized by this. But this has been the, the, the practice. And Nixon a lot of the things that come out after Watergate are because Nixon himself is trying to get the CIA. He, Nixon believes the CIA is behind this and he's paranoid for good reason. Uh, and so he wants to, he fires Helms and he brings in this guy named Schlesinger and he tells him, dig up all the dirt you can on the CIA. I, I want some leverage over them, especially as we see that these plumbers have more CIA connections than we knew. And they're acting in ways that are damaging to us. We got to dig up everything at the CIA to so try to get control of this agency, and then maybe they'll be able to help us, uh, you know, deal with this. And he th that becomes the family jewels files, and some of these get leaked to the press, and they cause major scandals. So all these revelations that come out in Watergate are not just because people are trying to blow the whistle on Nixon's crimes, but Nixon and pro Nixon forces are leaking crimes committed by CIA and so on. And this is making it into the public discourse. So it's a really damaging thing for the national security state uh, and its central organs of uh, you know, the CIA and the FBI. A lot of stuff gets exposed and it has to be explained why these actors and the press, which typically covers up high criminality in the United States, why they pursued this up to the point that Nixon is forced to resign, uh, but only after Spiro Agnew, his vice president, is forced to resign, a guy that Nixon used to call his assassination insurance policy because he felt nobody would assassinate him <laughs> as long as Agnew was there. But they get rid of Agnew and they put in Gerald Ford, a guy whose most notable accomplishment up to that point is serving on the Warren Commission and falsifying the entry point of the so-called magic bullet, you know, among other things he did in the, in the Warren Commission. But this is a guy who's really just uh, somebody who will do whatever the, the establishment tells them to. He was Hoover's inside man on the commission uh, when he was there. And he becomes president despite not ever winning an election and not being an especially charismatic or dynamic politician. He's put in to sort of settle the dust after Watergate and deal with Vietnam ending. And, and, and Aaron, we should mention, you know, who was Ford's VP? Drum roll, Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller, but he <laughs> there does you get go. dropped. He does get <laughs> dropped also. 
which sets the stage for the Rockefellers. He gets dropped from the ticket for 1976, which sets the stage for, I believe, the sort of realignment from on high of the Democratic Party becoming the party of Rockefeller Republicans and the liberal progressives such as they were in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s are basically out in the cold and they're still not a part of the power structure. The closest was Bernie Sanders. And we saw the way that they closed ranks to keep him from winning, even when he was the most popular person. Instead, we get surprised Joe Biden as the as the nominee. So this this Watergate, uh, post Watergate alignment in the U.S. in U.S. politics is a victory for the right wing, not a victory for liberals or democracy or the rule of law. It ends up ushering in the era of Reagan and lawlessness, criminality, and exploitation on a global scale uh, that. It really exceeds what came before it in U.S. and world history. Yeah, and you recently had on Jefferson Morley, who you know I, I'm I'm not going to say bad words about. He's he's a very accomplished journalist, and he certainly has done infinitely more on Watergate research on infinitely more research on Watergate and JFK than I have. But he'd also at the same time, um, again, no disrespect, just uh, some uh, some constructive criticism. He often. Uh, fails to deviate very much from a lot of Western foreign policy consensus, especially vis-a-vis China and Russia. And you had him on your show recently, and it was a very interesting discussion about Richard Helms and Richard Nixon and his new book, which details the relationship between CIA Director Helms and and Nixon and the, the key role of Helms and Watergate and all of that. And one of the parts of your interview, it was a very good discussion, but there was one part that I really disagreed with, and that was where... Morley really downplayed the Nixon visit to China in 1972, and then also the detente between Brezhnev's Soviet Union and between Nixon. And Morley really argues that 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 didn't play a role in Watergate in overthrowing Nixon and bringing in someone even more right-wing, Ronald Reagan. You also, in that interview, you raised another important distinction, which was another important factor, which was Again, not to praise Nixon in any way, who was, you know, an inveterate anti-communist and was overseeing, you know, spying on the left and all of this and actually had made a plan of like, if there was ever a a moment of crisis, we talked about this in an interview I did on your show, there was this list that the Nixon administration made of tens of thousands of leftists and dissidents who would be thrown in concentration camps if there was ever a moment of crisis. But anyway, that aside, regardless of, you know, obviously I'm not saying that like Nixon was so great, but at the same time, we should acknowledge that Nixon wasn't the same as the Reaganite Republicans. Nixon also was the one who famously said, we're all Keynesians now. Nixon's economic policy was much more protectionist. Nixon was not pushing the kind of neoliberal economics that Reagan ushered in. So you also argued in your interview that that could potentially be another factor in removing Nixon, is that he represented this other faction of the Republican Party that was much more isolationist and didn't necessarily take the idea that what's best for international capital and best for Wall Street is what's best in the national interest. So maybe do you think that those two factors could potentially explain this kind of palace coup against Nixon, his his normalization of relations with China and his his detente with the Soviet Union and then also his Keynesian economic policies? I believe that Nixon did create enemies among the one way to look at the the deep state in the U.S., which is applicable uh, across decades, 
is well, groups, groups that you could call the Prussians and the traitors, or you could call them alternatively the neoconservatives and neoliberals. But basically, there are militarists who really favor uh, pro-military, big defense budgets, uh, anti whatever the U.S. enemy is of the day, those kind of policies. And then there are the traders who are more interested in making lots of money through control of the international capitalist system. And that system was in flux uh, during the Nixon administration because of the breakdown of Bretton Woods. And that is what that to, to my mind it explains why Rockefeller, even though Kissinger was a Rockefeller guy and opening up to China was actually something that Rockefeller favored. He wrote a, an editorial about really praising the Chinese Communist Party. It's quite weird when you go back and read it. It's in the New York Times. And uh, this was, I think, a Rockefeller plan to bring China into the global capitalist fold and, uh, you know, potentially exploit Chinese markets and also... And to uh, unite against the Soviet Union, which is what they did. Yeah, appeal them against the Soviet Union. And I think that there is, if I had, they, this isn't something that they would say, but I don't want to go back and read all the trilateral commission reports or whatever. But I have to believe that they also thought that just the mere introduction of China into the capitalist system would create a class of Chinese capitalists that would ultimately, and that once you do that, they would acquire power just as capitalists had in the United States and somehow peel China further away from Marxism and any kind of model that would challenge the United States, which hasn't really happened. But, I, but what I think happened with Watergate which is where I think with Morley, he, he has a sort of liberal cosmology at times that even though he gets into crimes of the state, like he's done a lot of work on the Kennedy assassination, he definitely acknowledges that Watergate had a, that the Kennedy assassination had an impact and, a, and it was a factor in the way that Watergate played out and that Nixon was aware of CIA involvement in this and tried to get leverage over the CIA and the CIA countered. And ultimately you see who's left standing and it's not really Nixon, um, even though Helms suffers a little bit superficially, the forces I think that, that Helms represented were not harmed. They were ascendant, especially under Reagan. So I, I think that the, when you go, we were talking about NSC 68 earlier and how it created this, the military industrial complex was created in order to establish this international world order based on free trade in, in particular areas with the US as the dominant force but the U.S. balance of payments problems during Bretton Woods, one of the things Nixon wanted to do was to stick it to China and other dollar, or not, sorry, not China, Japan and Germany, Britain, other countries that were dollar surplus countries at the time and have more protectionist policies. And this was directly counter to what the Trilateral Commission, which had been established, I think, in 1972 or 73. So around the same time, which I do not see as a coincidence, uh, they're advocating totally different by, policies. By Rockefeller. By David Rockefeller. And so to my mind, these other people like the liberal Democrats and the your militarist people, they get swept up in this anti-Nixon coalition, which has enough force behind it that it can get the media on its side and you ultimately end up with Nixon out of the White House. But I think that the decisive force was the same force that was powerful enough to establish the international system to plan the international system during world war ii to implement it after world war ii to keep it in place throughout the 50s and 60s and then to see that it was reimagined and reforged after the collapse of the Bretton woods you know dollar system because of vietnam war spending and with nixon talking about protectionism 
and more uh, more liberal traditional liberal policies. Uh, this was exactly what they did not want. And so even Noam Chomsky will say Nixon was the last liberal president. Well, maybe that is something that people should take into account when you're trying to explain the strange outcome of Watergate, where uh, the, a criminal in the White House, which is pretty much the standard, you know, year in, year out, uh, is suddenly taken to task for his crimes, uh, and that all of these exposures of other state crimes are there. And it's a, this messy process because they're trying to expose each other. But like, why does it play out the way that it did? The argument that I make is that these same forces that created the post-war financial order and that were super powerful under Reagan were threatened by Nixon. And so that allowed them to sort of log roll this other opposition to Nixon, like the paranoia over um, detente and, and reduced military budgets and opening up to China and arms control, that these right-wingers, even like James McCord, because he was a, an Office of Security CIA guy, but he was really a right-winger, kind of a Bircherite himself. I don't think Helms, who was probably controlling McCord to some degree or directing him, I don't think Helms was of that bent, but Helms knew how to, Helms and forces associate, associated with Richard Helms uh, knew how to manipulate these guys and were quite shrewd about it. And the result is that Nixon is taken down. And, and so this is, you've got to look at what policy changes resulted from this in order to see who the, the criminal was. I mean, who benefits? This is very useful in understanding the Kennedy assassination. And it's very useful to understanding Watergate. After we recorded that interview with Jeff Morley, he told me about how um, a guy named Gannon, I think it was Frank Gannon, used to, he helped Nixon ghostwrite his memoirs. And he said that when Nixon would drink, get, uh, drink whiskey and they would hang out and he would talk about Watergate, Nixon would say that it was the same people that killed Kennedy that uh, got rid of him. And I think that that is <laughs> likely pretty much true. And it's notable that when the Warren, after Jack Ruby gets killed, uh, or sorry, after Lee Harvey Oswald gets killed by Jack Ruby a couple days after the Kennedy assassination, this, this lobbying campaign begins to create a blue ribbon panel of establishment guys to settle the dust uh, and say there was no conspiracy. Oswald had no Confederates, etc. And the guys that did it were two establishment guys, Rostow, uh, and Joseph Alsop, this reporter for the New York Times, but he's really a spook. I mean, that's his main thing. He's really he's totally connected to the CIA. He's even written up by Carl Bernstein for, for that. Uh, they lobby the White House, but apparently they are actually backed by Dean Acheson himself. So it's really Acheson saying immediately when there's no reason to believe that, there's, that, it's, that it was just one gunman, they're already saying, let's get a Blue Ribbon Commission together to settle the dust here. And this is being pushed by Acheson the pinnacle of the people that forged this world order, a multilateral world order that is capitalist with the U.S. and the hegemonic position. Uh, Nixon also threatened that order with sort of nationalist policies because Nixon, I think, wanted to be a, dem a democratic with a lowercase d statesman who pleased enough constituencies in America that he would get reelected and be remembered as a good president, uh, even as he was a vicious anti-communist and kind of ruthless, a liar and a criminal. I'm not saying he wasn't, but he had some inclinations toward nationalism and uh, democratic rule that would uh, create prosperity for America that uh, was, was unacceptable to the real masters of the uh, American regime. And I think that that's how you have to understand Watergate. 
Yeah, and this is the thing that, you know, people like Chomsky, with all due respect to Chomsky, that they dismiss is that this isn't to say that that Nixon or even JFK were like these great saintly figures and everything they did was, they, they, everything they did was good and right. You know, Chomsky especially is often cited to criticize JFK for, I mean, at the beginning, especially before he was killed, JFK did do things like use napalm in Vietnam and... But we should understand that there are these divisions within the U.S. ruling class. And obviously, yes, Nixon is a right winger. He's an anti-communist. But the people who defeated Nixon and came to power after were even more right wing, even more reactionary, even more against average working people's interests and serving the interests of, you know, capital of Wall Street. So we have to be able to understand those divisions within the ruling class and just taking this like pox on both their houses. They're all equally bad position and understand that, you know, JFK, especially at the beginning of his presidential presidential uh, mandate, he did definitely carry out a lot of actions that I would strongly disagree with. But he also began changing and trying to end the war in Vietnam and end the Cold War and pursue some kind of detente and oppose attempts to overthrow the Cuban government after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. And that's why he was killed. So, so uh, it's, it's useful to understand these, these major conflicts within the U.S. ruling class because you can't understand history without understanding those, those moments that, you know, you, you talk a lot about, you uh, quote Peter Dale Scott a lot, and he talks about these deep events, like these kind of watershed events in history that in which there's this significant historical event that changes the way history moves. Like if you look at a, like a river, right? Like a, or like a little stream, and there's like a rock in the stream that pushes the water in a different direction. These are these historical moments like Watergate, like the JFK assassination, that turn history into a different direction. And, you know, we're already on almost two hours, so I wanted to conclude here, Aaron, with a kind of provocative question. In the interview you did with Jefferson Morley, and again, no disrespect to him, he's done some good work, but I... He definitely has kind of a, a liberal perspective, especially in foreign policy, that I really disagree with. And in the interview, he argued that today, because of the Church Committee, because of Watergate, that there is this kind of popular opposition to the CIA, or at least that you know people know, average people tend to know that the CIA has this very shady past and maybe links to organized crime, and. But I actually don't necessarily agree with that. Obviously, maybe you could say before the JFK assassination, there was not much knowledge of the CIA. It was still very new. But I actually think if you look at, at Russiagate, another gate that has been very important historically and kind of shifted politics in a direction, it's very clear. And again, just as I wasn't praising uh, Nixon, I'm certainly not praising Donald Trump, I mean, who is an awful person who you know, imposed the blockade on Venezuela and assassinated Qasem Soleimani and expanded the war in Yemen. I mean, everyone knows I'm obviously not a crypto Trump fan. He was awful. But let's be clear, Russiagate was an intelligence community-led operation based on a fundamental lie that, that a sitting U.S. president was secretly conspiring with Russia. And we see that actually not only did Russiagate succeed in, in helping to destabilize any attempts by Trump, which were, you know, half-hearted and he was a complete idiot, but he claimed that he wanted to end the war in Syria. Of course, he didn't do that. 
He claimed he wanted to end the war in Afghanistan. Of course, he didn't do that. But not only did it help to destabilize his campaign, his, uh, his foreign policy plans, not only did it help uh, bring a bunch of these neocons, I mean, Trump voluntarily surrounded himself with people like H.R. McMaster and John Bolton. But at the same time, I think another important consequence of Russiagate is that it turned a huge part of the U.S. political class, that is liberals and the Democrats with a capital D, into supporters of the CIA. And many of them saw the CIA as this kind of new resistance, right? With the, you know, MIC resistance with a capital M and capital R. And we saw John Brennan, former CIA director, became a, a regular MSNBC analyst. So I think that in many ways, the CIA has been able, at least among liberals, has been able to kind of remodel itself. We see this now with its attempt to portray itself as, you know, like a supporting intersectional feminism with the the recruitment ad where it has like a Latina agent talk about why she's a feminist. And and then also the CIA just did this very strange op ed in the Washington Blade, which is like an important LGBT outlet in Washington. Uh, and it was written by a trans CIA agent. So we see that now the deep state is trying to rebrand itself and it's trying to rebrand itself as progressive uh, in support of human rights and support of the LGBT community and feminism. I mean, you could say that that's what it always did going back to the Rockefellers. I mean, the Rockefellers were always the more liberal wing of the Republican Party. But to me, it seems that this is like the kind of the new revenge of the deep state, right? That they, because of Russiagate, they actually have this new, they, they, they had this new rebranding. And if you look at a lot of the Democrats running in midterm elections for Congress, especially the House, how many of them are like former CIA agents? So it, to me, that this seems like this is like a new, a new chapter in the history of the deep state and its new attempt to rebrand itself. Yeah, and I, I hope that that's one thing that this book can do if more people read it is you'll look at this history because in putting this narrative together, about, you know, about half the book is the failures of social science and history to grapple with state criminality and the nature of the U.S. empire. The other half deals with, with history and with components of the actual regime that we have now in different ways that these dark forces are able to institutionalize and uh, influence political outcomes in U.S. foreign policy and in U.S. domestic politics. So this issue of the impact of the intelligence agencies uh, it should be put into historical context. And I really hope that some people can un understand how this has gone and look at these fundamental questions that pertain to democracy and the actual prospects of democracy in a capitalist empire, which is what the U.S. is. And it goes back to, in a way, these you mentioned deep events and parapolitics, but this practice of having the ability to enact policy and affect politics while denying that that's what you are doing. And there are many of the events that have, there are huge events in recent uh, history in the United States are intertwined with the intelligence apparatus and are shrouded in mystery and seem to be at times, totally, uh, the way that they are discussed seems to be actually clandestine agency cover stories. I mean, Russiagate is a is a good example. The fact that there was really no evidence 
to substantiate the entire thing, and yet there's been no accounting for it. There's been no reckoning about this, that the CrowdStrike CEO said, yeah, we don't really have any evidence of Russian exfiltration, and that that was said, and that that was kept secret for years while we still go on about this. That's intelligence chicanery uh, and state secrecy and lawlessness running amok. The well, Syrian Christopher Steele, I mean, a British, you know, MI6 agent, and his entire dossier was completely exposed as fake. Yes, and CI, the CIA dirty war, which is packaged as an organic revolution. Uh, you know, and Al-Qaeda came in, maybe they came in and kind of corrupted it a little bit, but oh well, and then ISIS. But all of these groups, the U.S. has a history of supporting similar groups, whether it's whether doing it uh, by themselves or through cutouts like the Saudis or the Pakistanis or the Turks or the or you know other Gulf states. Uh, you have Maidan, the coup in uh, Ukraine. That's the most well documented uh, CIA coup. The cover story is totally blown. You have the ambassador and the uh, deputy secretary of state talking about who they want to put in as the puppet, and yet people that does not even enter into the discourse today uh, as a data point that would be relevant to understanding the Russian invasion, right? It's just like lied about. Uh, and so this, the the clandestine state and what it's actually doing to run the US empire needs to be thought of. And it's, you know, if the US can't run, uh, it's, uh, let's say the US cannot assume its global leadership position without rampant law breaking, then that calls into question leg the legitimacy of the whole project. I mean, to me, it pretty much negates any legitimacy because the U.S. has, a, uh, before the Cold War and after the Cold War, the same interests were involved in kind of lawless exercises, but it really gets sanctioned with the actual federal government after World War II with this global empire. I think the problem is you cannot have an open society and democratic debate and the rule of law if you're going to have an empire, because how are you going to keep people in other countries from voting to use their valuable resources to make their lives better instead of letting multinational corporations come and loot them, you know, as though it's just a different form of colonialism. And that's kind of the history of the U.S. after World War II is to install, to make a transition from colonialism in the global south to neocolonialism and to maintain this economic order that allows that to happen. But it involves a whole lot of dirty tricks and crimes that have to be covered up and cover stories to to do this. And I, I think that it needs to be a discussion. It would be a discussion if America were a functional democracy at all as to how, whether we should have all of this clandestine governance around uh, and what it means for our democracy. But we don't. And so hopefully bringing this history together looking at the looking at it from a social science perspective uh people can see what we're actually dealing with because uh, that needs to be understood more before there's any hope to to reform anything yeah well i think that's a very good note to end on um we're at nearly two hours here but like i said this is going to be the beginning of a much larger conversation about what i think is a very important book one of the most important books published in the past decade and we were talking with I was speaking with Aaron Good, the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You can find it at Skyhorse and other places. I would advise, you know, try to avoid Amazon. But uh, it's a very good book. There's an audio version as well. And I mean, it's an incredible book. I've, I've spent weeks 
reading through it here. I mean, there's it's a there's so much good information. It's almost 400 pages. It really is like a a crash course, like a not a crash course. It's like a an extensive, detailed history of the U.S. deep state and criminality. I would also recommend going to patreon.com slash American Exception, and you can subscribe to his podcast, which is called American Exception. I myself am a patron. He has a lot of really good interviews on there. And then, of course, you can go to Twitter at Aaron underscore good underscore, and you can follow him on Twitter. Um, is there anything else that, that you want to plug, Aaron, before you wrap up here? No, I think that you covered, uh, we, we covered as much as we can in two hours. And uh, I have, I really enjoy talking about this material. I'm doing the podcast now, so I interview people a lot and we can get into these conversations. But the book, I mean, I really spent, you know, it's like I said, I sort of started down this path in late 2009 and it doesn't really get finished until 2021, the book. So it was like, a, like 10 plus years ex exploring these issues and trying to uh, distill this in a way that would be comprehensible. And so I, I love talking about this and I'm excited to do, to do more of these. So I, I thank you for having me on today. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. And for everyone watching or listening, again, this is the beginning of a larger series. Uh, what we're gonna do is Aaron's gonna post, uh, we're gonna do episodes focusing on different chapters and topics in his book, you know, like JFK, like uh, Malcolm X and MLK, like um, COINTELPRO, NSC68. We can talk about the Rockefellers, Kissinger, uh, you know, so many things. Iran-Contra is going to be a big part of it. Um, Watergate. So we're going to do a series on all of those topics. And what we'll do is we'll be posting them regularly. Aaron's going to post them on his podcast, American Exception. I'm going to post them as well at Multipolarista. So you can find that as well at patreon.com slash American Exception or, and or uh, patreon.com slash Multipolarista. And then of course, anyone who's interested in supporting this show, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash Multipolarista. And I have uh, next week, I'm gonna have um, Michael Hudson back on and we're gonna talk about the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates. We're gonna talk about Larry Summers calling for increasing unemployment to combat inflation. We're going to talk about Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, calling for dropping wages in the U.S. to combat inflation. We're going to talk about the recent BRIC summit that just happened yesterday, June 23rd. There was a meeting of the leaders of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So lots, lots of coverage coming up. That's going to be on Tuesday, um, Tuesday the 28th. So lots of great coverage coming up, but like I said, this is the first of many conversations I'll be having with Aaron Good. Thanks to everyone. Like I said, I'll be back on Tuesday the 28th with Michael Hudson, and then I'm gonna be back uh, with Aaron pretty regularly to have a series on his book, American Exception. So we'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.